All right. Welcome to church. Welcome home. My name is Manny, and I am one of the pastors on staff here. And it's so good to be up here and to connect with you guys. Wasn't our team so incredible in leading us into the throne of God this morning? And that song always gets me. All, all my life, you've been faithful. I just like, it's like my brain goes back to um, like my resume in my life. And it's like, if, if God wasn't faithful, I shouldn't be here right now. I don't deserve anything I have. Everything I, I have, honestly, I haven't earned. I don't deserve anything. God's been so faithful and gracious and, and generous. And I'm sure that many of us feel the same way. So, shall we pray together? Gracious God, to know you is to love you, but to love you is to know you even more. And this morning, I pray that you would tenderize our hearts and help us to ruminate and process through your, your words, for they give life, and they are food for our souls. So will you meet us here in a special way? In Jesus' name, amen. Will you please stand for the reading of the word? One of the teach Hello? Ah. One of the teachers of religious law was standing there listening to the debate. He realized that Jesus had answered well. So he asked, "Of all the commandments, which is the most important?" Jesus replied, "The most important commandment is this: Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the one and only Lord. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second is equally as important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. The teacher of religious law replied, Well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth by saying that there is only one God and no other and I know it is important to love him with all my heart and all my understanding and all my strength and to love my neighbor as myself. This is more important than to offer all of the burnt offerings and sacrifices required in the law. Realizing how much the man understood, Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Mark 12, 28 to 34. Thank you, Melanie. You may be seated. You may be seated. The backstory begins with the Jewish leadership sending a group of Pharisees to confront Jesus. Now, if you're new to church, new to this whole Jesus idea and, and the Bible and church and Christianity, don't worry, you're not alone. The Pharisees were one of the religious groups or parties in the first century Palestine um, area in Israel. Most of them were staunchly opposed to Jesus' ministry and his teachings. They were like anti-Jesus, most of them. Today, if, if, if you talk about Jesus, many in our society might label you a conservative. It is what it is, I don't know why. In those days, what Jesus was teaching and doing uh, was actually considered not only liberal or progressive, but, but downright radical and wrong, and in many ways anti-establishment. And it wasn't in the categories of like left and right that we have today. It was just totally different. But Jesus was disrupting the system that they had. Jesus' teachings and his works shook the neat little religious 
and political systems that they had built with their two hands. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus, his primary mission and goal wasn't to shake the system as much as it was to fulfill the mission of his Father. Redeeming all of creation and facing an enemy whose very ethics and tactics employed violence, the misuse of power, perverted justice, false hope, and ultimately sin and death. And if Jesus shook the religious and political systems of his day, it was, it was simply because the town wasn't big enough for the both of them. Like in the old you know, John Wayne movies, this town ain't big enough for the both of us, and he pulls out his gun. It was just like that. The sacrificial system that was established was, was no longer useful and necessary, and it was either Jesus or the system. And political systems of power were built on the very same thing that sent Jesus to the cross. So, of course, Jesus would shake things up. He was a pebble in the shoe of the establishment. And so one day, some of these Pharisees traveled to Jesus, and, to, and they wanted to start some trouble and to ask him some questions about taxes, if they should pay Rome or not pay Rome. And it was kind of a no-win question. And Jesus, so eloquently, with wisdom, grace, and truth, shuts them down. Then a little bit later, another religious group called the Sadducees come to Jesus, and they're trying to trip him up with questions about the afterlife. Like, will we get married in the afterlife? Well, what if like, you're married now and your spouse dies, and you get remarried, and in the afterlife, do you have two wives? And, you know, just... Sounds really silly, but there was, a <laughs> there was an arrow pointed at Jesus with these questions. And again, Jesus, full of wisdom, truth, answers so eloquently and shuts them up because he was the one that actually was the God of the Old Testament. He was there. So he knew the law through and through. Have you ever had someone ask you a question who wasn't really looking for the answer? Have you? Maybe your children, like they're seeking one answer, but the one that you're going to give is not what they want. So Jesus, in this conversation with the Pharisees and with the Sadducees, he basically drops the mic. Now, if you're not a Gen Y or a Gen Z or a millennial and you don't know what dropping a mic is, you can search it up on Google after the service. Um, are you Googling? Do it after the service. And so this is where the story actually begins. This is where the text begins. And all that was going on, this religious leader, this person who knew the law and was educated in theology, was listening kind of in the back corner while there's this commotion going on with Jesus and these religious leaders that were trying to trip him up, and Jesus drops the mic, which basically means, you know, no more conversation. You're done. I won. And this teacher of the law, in the midst of the commotion, comes up to Jesus and he finds his way. And he asks him a question. Now, I want to ask you a question. If, if, if your house was on fire, what would you grab? For those of you that are watching, if your house was on fire, you're home now, so I hope not, what would you grab? You have only five to ten minutes to grab whatever you can. What, your wallet? Your passport? 
Cash, what's in your safe? Your expensive watches, maybe the one that your grandfather gave you? The family albums, that's right. How about your dog? Your kids? Your spouse? Don't answer that. You guys are horrible. If, answer that the wrong way and we have counselors waiting after service for you to pray over you. Now here's another question. Um, out of all the thousands of things that you own, if you were to be standing from a distance and looking at your house almost in ashes, and you got the stuff, you know, the pile of stuff that you took, would you be satisfied that these would be the essential things that you took? Now, imagine later on you make a list of all the things that burned down because of insurance purposes. And you also write down or look at the things that you took. Wouldn't you discover that the things that you took are where your priorities lie in some ways? Or the value system that you have? Or maybe that is important to your life. Wouldn't you? This is exactly what the writer of the Gospel of Mark, or the Gospel according to Mark, is trying to convey in this strange yet fascinating encounter between Jesus and this educated religious leader. He asked Jesus, out of all the commands and moral ethical laws in the entire volume of the Jewish Bible, which one matters most? Basically, Jesus, what's your priority? In case of a fire, what would you take? And so maybe the response that Jesus has in some ways actually deserves our greatest attention. Because in this passage, Jesus single-handedly makes the unequivocal emphasis of the importance of single-hearted devotion to what God desires for humanity. Let me say it again. Jesus' answer his single-handedly, he gives this answer that basically tells what is the priority for all of humankind. Let me say it in a different way. In this passage, Jesus boils down all that God has to say in three elements. Better yet, three realities that he wants you and I to live in. It's a prescription to living the life God intends for human beings as a whole. So here in Mark 12, verse 29 to 31, he says, the most important command is this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord, our God, is the one and only Lord. And you must love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is equally as important, love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. Now, it's interesting, he doesn't say commandments. He says commandment. It's singular. So we know that this commandment has three parts. And um, how many of you, like if, if you were asked, hey, so what's the great commandment? You would say, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what, we always, that's what I've always heard. How many of you have ever noticed the first part of the commandment where it says, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and he's the one and only. That's basically in Hebrew what it's trying to say. This morning's talk is titled, A People of Presence. A people of presence. What do, we, what do I mean by that? 
or I guess this is the thesis of this morning, is, is that the Christian life cannot be fully lived without the presence of God and being present in the lives of others. It's, it's a lopsided, weak, half-baked Christianity. And, and it's, it's one that's always like fixed on you, like always feeding it. And, it's, and, it's, and you're trying to compensate, but it's, it's, a, it's a feeble Christianity because it's not full. If, if you just get stuck at loving God and coming to church and being a good, good Christian person and raising your hands and giving to the poor, but not giving to the poor, but you worship well, you worship well, and, and then, but then that's it, and you're not involved in the lives of others, lifting others up, incorporating justice, kingdom justice, and ethics in our world in business practices, in tax laws, in, in medicine, and in our school system, and in our justice system. I mean, if, if we're not involved, and, and we're, we're just happy Christians that go to church, then our Christianity is actually, like, one-sided. That's what Jesus is saying. But something else is important. Have, have you noticed that, like, the here, O Israel, our Lord, our God is one? What does that have to do with anything? How does that even work with this whole people of presence thing. It doesn't make sense. Or maybe it does. Let me elaborate. We cannot live the Christian life fully the way God intends for you and I to if we aren't. One, prioritizing the position God holds in the presence of competing voices, narratives, and attractions in my life and yours. Let me say it again. We cannot live the Christian life, you cannot live the Christian life fully the way that God intends if you aren't, if we aren't prioritizing the position God holds in the presence of competing voices, narratives, and attractions in our lives. Second, we can't live this life fully the way that God intends if we're not pursuing the presence of God in our day-to-day lives through new practices and old practices and rhythms that form us and shape us and sustain us. And third, we can't live the presence of God we can't live the full Christian life that God intends if, and equally as important, Jesus says, if you don't move beyond your own individual ambitions to be present in the lives of others. You just can't. It's a lopsided Christianity. So this morning's three main points are this, even though I just gave you some other three points too. First point, um, Presence as priority. The second is presence as practice. The third, presence as proximity. This, this morning's goal is to figure out how do we engage in God's presence individually as believers walking this journey of faith. And also, how do we as a community, because it's really not only an, an individual thing. Even though our Western culture is highly individualistic, it's a communal thing. It's a communal pursuit. Well. Let's start off with the presence as priority. You ready? In verse 29, it says, the most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord. The first part of the great commandment Jesus gives us is the most under-focused, under, maybe even under-appreciated part of the first of the three-part commandment. But to understand, we have to jump into Old Testament history a little bit. So let's do that. In this command, Jesus is actually reciting a well-known Hebrew confession prayer called the Shema. Can you say the Shema? 
All right, you'd be a great Hebrew scholar. And it's from the book of Deuteronomy 6.4, and this is what it says. Well, let me first tell you what it means. The word Shema basically means, hey, listen. <laughs> that's, that's what it means. It means, hey, listen up. Attention. Listen, O Israel. The Lord is our God and the one and only Lord. And then Deuteronomy 5 goes into, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart. Jesus is pulling from the Old Testament. The Shema confession is one is the first part of Jesus' commandment and serves kind of as a foundation launching pad for the following two. Now, it's really interesting. This, this past week, um, our uh, kid O'Brien, who's watching right now, um, got this brilliant idea that he wants to uh, put his computer, his PC computer, um, change cases, meaning like take all the nuts and bolts and the, the internal organs of the computer and move it into a nicer case that has more fans and more LED lights. So I call my friend who's a super genius tech because I only know like a little bit and so we do it together. And literally did we know that the, the computer that we bought him was kind of a proprietary computer that not everything fits neatly perfectly into the, the new case. After the fourth time coming, it's still not fully the way it's, it should be. We had to modify and use a saw and all these things on the old one <laughs> to make the new one work. But there's this thing called the motherboard. And this motherboard is like the launching pad of the computer. It's, it's, it's where everything sticks together, where everything holds together. Every piece is joined together in this thing called the motherboard. So you have to make sure that stuff fits into the motherboard because that's what runs your computer. It, it, it's like the hub. Well, this part of the passage is the hub of Jesus' great commandment. The Shema was and still is for the Orthodox Jew the most central affirmation of the Jewish faith. So you might be asking, well, well, what does the affirmation of that the Lord is God and he's one mean? And how does this relate to what we're talking about today? How many of you drove to church today? Raise your hands. And those of you that are watching, you did not drive. And that's okay. How many of you drove by the temple built in honor of Moloch? No, you, you didn't see it? Oh. How many of you drove by the temple uh, built in honor of Zeus and Hera? No? How about the shrine built in honor of the god Marduk? How about First Community Church of Baal? That was kind of heretical. How about the, the, the temple built in honor of Amun-Ra, the Egyptian god? Mm, I guess not. Maybe you took the wrong freeway, I don't know. Of course not. See, we don't live in a world of these kinds of deities anymore. These were the deities of the ancient Near East in which Israel was couched in. The surrounding cultures worshipped these gods. Almost all of the surrounding kingdoms and empires worshipped a whole host of gods. They were, in essence, polytheistic. Israel was essentially the only monotheistic, essentially the only monotheistic of its kind to affirm the belief that there is but one God. There's Zoroastrianism, but that's different. And this God calls us to love him and to love others in the same way. It was different than all the other gods. 
This was unlike any other deity of its time. Deities were often created and shaped by human cultures and communities and hands to help cope with the, the difficulties of economic life in an a, a agrarian society. People were poor. You didn't go to Ralph's to buy your steak. You grew your animals. You killed them for food. You hunted. That's how it worked. This is before um, corporatism and industrialism and capitalism came into the picture. You're hungry? Why? No crops this year? Why? No rain? What do you do? You pray to the rain god. No response? Darn. You sacrifice your cow. Now that's smart, because you're throwing away a good piece of steak for vegetables. I think it's just completely wrong. But anyway, I'm, I'm not going to critique history here. And, and eventually, when the climate doesn't work out in your favor, what ends up happening is, is you end up upping your, the, the, the ante. You, you end up increasing the value of your sacrifice. It's the way the ancient world worked. To the point where cows wouldn't be enough, 50 goats would not be enough. To the point where now your children would be sacrificed for sustenance and to appease and to please the gods. And by the way, Abraham, the father of the Jews, knew something about this pretty well, living a, a pagan life before Yahweh got a hold of him or God got a hold of him. And uh, just as a side note, it would be through Abraham's family tree that Jesus, the Son of God, would come to us, offer himself as the once and for all sacrifice, the final sacrifice, showing humanity that this God wasn't interested in the sacrifice of your children. No, 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 no. This God loved the world so much that he sent his own son into the world, different than the other gods. So that no more sons and daughters need to be sacrificed on the altars of jihad, on the altars of sex trafficking and child soldiers in the service of the drug cartels or in Africa. These are the commodities of a world that is blinded, sometimes right under our nose. When we, when we confess that the Lord our God is one, the Shema, that he alone is God, like, like in the Shema Confession, that, that we're not just affirming monotheism or the belief in one God. What we're doing is we're actually reordering our priorities. We're lifting high the name of Jesus, inviting him into every part of our lives. We're affirming that Jesus is king and that his supremacy is unmatched, far above other competing gods, lowercase g, in our lives. We're desiring his presence to fill every space that we occupy. And we're positioning ourselves to see divine thumbprints all over our lives. Isn't that amazing? To be people that desire God's presence and you just, you're so keenly aware of what God's doing that you're able to see his thumbprints and see like, ah, this person just yelled at me. They're not really yelling at me. It's because they're just, they're going through a divorce right now and maybe they need, they need to be listened to. I don't know. Do we listen? So you might be asking, well, competing gods. Who worships Moloch, Baal, Zeus, Asherah, Marduk? 
true. No one does anymore. But the, the global gods and religions that, that are worshipped today, that we pay homage to, both you and I, without even knowing that sometimes, that we give homage to in our lives, with our love, with our attention, with our intellectual affections, they don't advertise themselves as gods, lowercase g, because some of them can even be good things, necessary things. You know what they are? You ready? Now, you might write your card. You might not agree, but you can give it to Pastor David. <laughs> Here we go. Here are some gods. Consumerism and the lust for having more. Sportsism and the altars of football stadiums and fields. Corporatism, occupationalism, workaholicism, identityism, busyism, staying youngism, ministryism, nationalism, video gamerism, scientism, sexualism, capitalism, propagandaism, false truth and fake newsism, violenceism, liberalism, conservatism, progressivism, extremism, anarchism, racism, hedonism, activism, leftism, rightism, I don't care, I'm in the middleism. See, the danger is, is, is that anything even good or noble or destructive and evil, anything which competes with Jesus is a deity because it competes with the one true God, like the Shema says, the one and only God. And so what I'm saying is we cannot live in the presence of God nor love God the way that this commandment tells us with all that we are if we're walking around with idols sticking out of our pockets, our purses, and our briefcases. If you want to live life, if I want to live a life full of God's presence, we have to prioritize Rearrange, and that almost always means reordering what our priorities are and what we value most. We just sang a few weeks ago. Come, tear down the walls I build up. Every wall I build up. These are the walls that we're singing about sometimes. Fortified barriers that are, that are idols in your life that are holding you back, and you don't even know it sometimes. It's like trying to run a marathon with rocks in your backpack. The Shema says, listen, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. The Lord your God is the only God. We cannot live the Christian life fully the way God intends if we aren't prioritizing the position God holds and the presence of competing voices and narratives and attractions in our life. Second, the practice of the uh, presence as, as practice. We can't do that either if we pursue the presence of God. I mean, if we don't pursue the presence of God in our day-to-day -day lives through practices and rhythms that sustain us. Mark 12, 30 says, which is the next part of the commandment, Jesus says, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is not the kind of love that Hollywood tells us, the fuzzy, pink, you know, hot, the romantic, romanticized version of love. And then you talk to them and they're like, their lives are so messed up and they don't even know how to put it back together. But in the movies, it looks really good and we're trying to follow that and make that a template for our lives. It's not the kind of love. The word love that's used in this passage is agapao. Can you say agapao? No, that sounds like Kung Pao chicken. Say, say, say agapao. There you go. 
This kind of love is a verb. It, it goes beyond words. It cares enough. It cares enough to go from words into action. Like, you can tell me you love me, but if you don't do anything, you show me what you care about the most. If you say, yeah, you love God, or if you say you love your family, and you're working all the time, you're never home. There's seasons, obviously there's seasons in life, and you know, I'm not trying to be critical, because every season you have to adjust, and sometimes you have to you know, kill yourself in one season so that you could live differently in the other seasons. But as a, as a, as a general law of life, you, you, you know, you, taking from here and giving to there, it, it shows our priority. It shows what we value the most. And so when Jesus says, when he says heart, the word heart used here is, it's focused on the center of your personhood, the place where your freedom and autonomy comes from. The fact that you have a heart means you have a will, and the fact that you have a will and a heart, it, in, in the ancient world, the heart and will were oftentimes interchangeable. One was the part of your personhood, and, and the other was like your personhood, but, but your ability to, to make decisions. And, and, so, and so Jesus is saying, like, you need to love God with the part of you that, that is autonomous, the, the, the part of you that holds decisions and processes through things. And it's also the part of you that exercises its dominion in the world. That's why we sing so many worship songs about change my heart, oh God. That's why the Psalms all talk about, you know, test, see my ways. Proverbs 4, 23 says up here. Can you read it with me? Ready? Go. Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. The next part, when Jesus says soul, and by the way, these are all really big topics, and each one could be like a Sunday of its own. So I'm just kind of just lightly breezing through. Your soul is basically the thing that is running your life. We all have an inner life and an outer life. Your soul is running your interior life. It's not the idea that like the, the, the Daffy Duck Looney Tunes version where he gets shot and all of a sudden he kind of floats into the sky. You know, that, that's not... It's you. You are a soul. It's the part of you that, that, that animates you. It's the interior life, the undercurrents deep within us that govern the exterior life. Our, our interior life contains our, our secret thoughts, the margins in which we operate from, our hopes, our dreams, our fears, our hurts, our hang-ups. And it's the part that our spiritual formation deeply affects. In the book, um, The Renovation of the Heart, by um, author Dallas Willard, this is what he writes. What is running your life is your soul, not external circumstances, not your thoughts, not your intentions, not your feelings, but your soul. The soul is the aspect of your whole being that correlates, integrates, and enlivens everything going on in various dimensions of yourself or of the self. The soul is the life center of, of human beings. You're, you are a soul made by God, made for God, and made to need God. Isn't that beautiful? The next part, when Jesus says mind, he's talking about in, in the ancient world, mind included both thoughts and feelings. Today, when you say mind, it's like logic, reason, heart, emotion, feelings. But that's not the language of the Bible. 
or how it's defined. And our, um, our minds are our conscious lives, which are largely governed by the practices. I want to say this again. Our minds are our conscious lives, which are largely governed by our practices and our habits. And when Jesus says strength, and I'm going to get back to that a little bit later. When Jesus says strength, it's, it's the place where, it's what, your body, it's, 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 it's the place where both your heart and your mind have its kingdom. It's the place where your mind and your heart are able to actually affect things physically. Or else you'd just be thinking and processing but never doing anything because you're just a brain bubble, a, a cloud without a body. But your body is your, your first layer of, of, of your kingdom, your dominion. If you want to conquer someone else, it's because that, that kingdom, which is you, is now conquering someone else, whether in business or something else. Your body is your kingdom. All four parts make you, you, and make me, me. Our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength, and it's deeply vital for our spiritual formation and our followership of Jesus. To live a life filled with the presence of God, where we see and experience God move beyond just desire, we need to begin to develop practices. Why? Because the Christian life has to be lived out through practices. It's not just attending church. It's not just, just thinking your way through. It's not an intellectual position. It's not even a worldview as, as much as it is broken down into daily, tiny, step-by-step decisions of faithfulness on a day-to-day basis when things are easy, difficult, tense, drama, when nothing goes your way, when everything goes your way, these tiny little decisions over time, faithful towards the same direction over time, is what builds us and sustains us. That is what the Christian life is broken down into. Think about it this way. If you were to bring a bodybuilder up here, I know, I might look like one, but it's okay. If, if you were to bring a big buff bodybuilder up here and you were to look at our phones and our schedules, you would see something very interesting. You, you, you'd find that first, the noticeable difference besides the physique, I like my physique by the way, but the first thing you would notice is, is that our schedules are very different. Our priorities on time are very different. The next thing you would notice is that our practices and our habits are very different. After service, I'll go to a habit and have a double-double burger, not from In-N-Out, but like a, you know, double steak burger. But the bodybuilder will have some salad and some chicken breast with maybe some quinoa. Certainly kale. I don't know. Kale is from the devil. I, I, don't, I don't like kale. <laughs> Can I get an amen? <laughs> and, and since they... They knew that, and they kind of found out that it's like borderline satanic. They, they, now, um, they now harvest them when they're baby kales, so they don't look as hard and as rough like sandpaper, so that you would enjoy it. But it's, kale is still kale. Kale is still kale. It's the personal commitment to tiny practices over a long period of time that bring about the greatest fruits and results in our spiritual lives. Superficiality is the curse of our age. 
Superficiality is the curse of our age. Our instant satisfaction-driven culture is pushing us faster and faster and faster toward a mile-wide and inch-deep spirituality. Spiritual practices allow us to, to place ourselves before God so that we can, trans we can let God transform us. And the need for change within us is God's work, not ours. Much like a farmer, what does a farmer do? Who is helpless to grow grain. So what he does is he, all he can do is provide the right conditions for, plant, for growing the grain. And so throws the seeds, he cultivates the ground, he plants or she plants the seeds, waters the plants, then he or she waits for the natural forces of the earth to take over. And up comes the grain. And that's how the spiritual life is. Pastor down at Saddleback Church in Lake Forest says this, that you cannot fabricate the winds of God, but you can set, you can set your sail and be ready for when the winds come. To see the, to see the presence of God, there's a lot of it is setting your sail. To love God with all that we are is, is to integrate these love into practices. Now, one of my struggles was like, okay, so I don't want to just teach a good sermon and a good message and not like give you at least a couple of options. I, I brought some books. Uh, these are all really great books. Um, all of them uh, have something great, uh, a lot of great insight as to uh, spiritual disciplines and practices stuff that Christians have been doing for thousands of years that has sustained them and stuff that maybe we're not used to and because we're just, we're modern. But I just chose four simple practices and I'm just going to give them to you. First, commit to the practice of continually gathering together for worship, learning from the scriptures together and sharing life with one another. That's a discipline. Because what you're doing on Sundays is you're carving out time out of your whole week. You have all these things to do and all these places to go. But on Sundays, on the Lord's Day, you're carving that out. And in fact, I was talking to my son this morning. It's like we're carving out this day and we're saying we're dedicating this time and this space to you. To be together, to sing and to worship, to bring our theology and our doctrines and our ideas and things that we agree with, we don't agree with, our struggles, our pain, our celebrations. Our food, sometimes we have potlucks. And to come and do it together. And to celebrate King Jesus. The second practice, practice the Sabbath. Maybe it's carving out an hour a week in your life or one day a week in your life to rest from labor. Maybe it's saying, God, I trust you that you can sustain my life with one less day of me working. Because the Sabbath isn't about God, it's about you. Third, maybe you can commit to daily moments of silence and meditation. The Bible has two different Hebrew words that convey the idea of meditation. And they're used, do you know how many times in the Bible? 58 times. These words have various meanings, like and, and they are listening to God's word, reflecting on God's works, rehearsing God's deeds, 
and ruminating on God's laws of life. Let me say it again. Listening to God's word. Reflecting on God's works. Just go outside. Look at the beauty around you. Say, God, thank you for the mountains. And you hear the birds chirping. Thank you that you take care of the birds. If you take care of the birds, won't you take care of me? Rehearsing God's deeds and ruminating on God's laws. And each time that you recreate moments of silence and meditation, these practices, you are moving beyond the hurriedness and the superficialities of our culture, and you're retreating into the inner world of contemplation and stillness. It's one way we can resist the temptation of a hurried life. The fourth, commit to creating a rule of life. You're like, what? Commit to creating a rule of life. Uh, Peter Cesaro, who actually wrote this book called um, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, he says this. He says, a rule of life is an intentional, conscious plan to keep God at the center of everything we do. Just like you create a budget for your finances, you direct money on where it should go. Do we do that with our spiritual lives? Do we sit down and reevaluate and, and put everything on paper or computer or maybe just talking with your best friend, spouse, partner, whoever, and just kind of putting it all out there? We all have some kind of an unspoken rule of life. It's how we organize our time and spend our energy. And it's what we give ourselves over to. A rule of life, in many ways, is, a, is like creating an intentional plan for three months, six months, for one year, where you evaluate your relationship with God, your relationship with yourself, your relationship with those in your circle or circles, and your relationship with people and communities outside of your circle. I'm, I want to say it again. Your rule of life evaluates, basically, your relationship with God, with yourself, with those in your circles, and with people and communities outside of yourself. Your rule of life evaluates your deepest longings and desires, your fears, your hopes, your hang-ups, and the way that you live out your life. It help, but it helps cultivate new patterns and habits and desires in your life. So the goal is to actually bring central focus to your life, bringing greater silence and stillness, and overall a new rhythm and tempo of life. Maybe you gotta go fishing more often. Maybe you just need to go to the Descanso Gardens and just sit. Maybe you have to wake up maybe a little bit earlier in the morning and just be. Lastly, the practice, um, the presence as proximity. And this is our last point. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. You can't do this one if you don't do the one before, and you can't do that one if you don't do the one before. The Christian life must ultimately lead into, the, into proximity with others. You can't love from being far away. You can't love by being far away. L love and presence requires proximity. But getting close oftentimes gets messy. It gets dirty sometimes, and it hurts. 
it disappoints. Sounds like Jesus. That the Christian life is not a sanitized, isolated, quarantine life. It's a life that's shared. It's communal. It's poured out for the sake of others. Imagine if Jesus never came close. There's this word called the incarnation. Maybe it's a new church word for you. But the term literally means incarnate, which means to take on flesh or in human form or to embody. The incarnation is when the Son of God became one of us for our sake, and he's calling you and I, his family, his community, his church, to be an incarnational community. Following Jesus isn't easy. It's messy, and it's oftentimes misunderstood. But when you, when you step out of your comfort zone, whether you're introvert or extrovert or you've been wounded or whatever, I, I mean, life is tough, and we all are dealt with cards. But one thing I know is that Jesus never calls you to something he doesn't give you power to do. That Jesus will never call you to do something that he does not supply his presence to guide you through. Never. He doesn't let you go by yourself, by yourself, with yourself, out on a limb. But when you step out and you get to listen to people's stories and you get to hear where, where they're coming from, it's one of the greatest opportunities that God gives us to be incarnational. I want you to watch a video as we close, as we take communion. Jesus had a story too. This moment has a story as well. That every life has a story if we bother to just read it. And I bet you have a story too. I don't know where you come from. I don't know what baggage is that you walk into this place with. I don't know if your story is too shameful to tell others or maybe um, it's a story that you've been holding for a while that you want to share with somebody. Or maybe you've just come and you've been running your life on empty. You haven't sensed God's presence in a while. Maybe you read the Bible and maybe you come to church and check off all the Christian things, but you just, you're living a perfectly clean, sanitized religious life, but you just, it doesn't have life. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're living the greatest life but you just don't share it with others. I don't know. But as we partake of the elements, and if I can ask um, Laurie and Rod to come up, I want us to be mindful that, that this moment and that this practice that we're doing right now is an incarnational practice. It's because Jesus' life was poured out. The, the bread represents his body and the grape juice and wine represents his blood. And it represents that the fact that God didn't stay but he came for you and for me. And that, that, if, that if your story is a resume full of brokenness and just it's not what you would post on Facebook obviously 
I got some of that in my story too. But, but I know that if we take our story and put it underneath the story of the cross, underneath this story, that nothing is redeemable. And that the Christian life will once again look like something that you're just so excited to live on a day-to-day -day basis. And that even in the presence of pressures and, and difficulties and your own internal confusions, that still you can still sense God and, and be guided by the Spirit is because you're practicing His presence daily. Will you stand with me? If you look to your right and to your left, you'll find gracious individuals that love you and that care for you and that are people of prayer and people of grace, people of confidence. And as you walk down, if you choose to, maybe share your story or maybe share parts of your story or maybe there's something that you just need someone to pray with you before you take the elements. You can come down and meet with them. And it's in confidence. Or maybe you just, you just need a re reassuring presence in your life again. And maybe you need that. But as you come down, let's celebrate the fact that our story could be found in Jesus' story.